educating you on some game. And here from the number four, his number hangs in the rafters. He's one of the all-time scorers for the Utah Jazz, Adrian Dantley. He was in town for Jazz Mavs. Now he's on the show on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, Equal Housing Lender. Caught AD on the broadcast, and I caught him at the game on Saturday. I'm glad he got a really nice reception from the crowd because I was almost afraid of how people would react to somebody who retired so long ago. His last game happened before I was alive. Retired in 91 from the NBA, went to play overseas in Italy. You've heard his story told in other jazz avenues about him being a crossing guard, and they brought it up on the broadcast. But I think there's so much more to Adrian Dantley than what has been told or the conversations that happen around him. And on the broadcast, I feel like they could have taken more time to tell about his game and what he does. So here is where I suppose would be a nice avenue because I got to sit down with him for a half hour, pick his brain, talk about old times. He is one of the most unique players in all of basketball. And I know this only from reading Bob Ryan. He's come on the podcast. I've talked to him about AD and... Bob brings up how unique of a player this guy was. Because tell me someone who could go 46 points, 28 free throws, 9 field goals made, and not a 3 among them. It's only AD. He has these creative, herky-jerky moves. I watched Game 5 of an 85 first-round series against the Rockets. Might have been Game 4. Whatever. I got the point. The AD had this pump fake that got people jumping out of their shoes for some reason. He looks when he's out there like Kyle Anderson, slow-mo, because he doesn't have this crazy athleticism jump out of the gym, but he's on the floor, and he still gets to his spots. Using feints, pump fakes, moves, jabs, his footwork's impeccable, and he's doing it all for a team that finally is getting that success. When he came here, it was basically an expansion franchise. He got traded for Spencer Haywood from the Lakers right before they went on their dynasty run in the 80s. And AD walks into a situation where it's barren. It's Frank Layden, it's Tom Nisalki, and that's about it. And then, when this thing's getting in the right direction, they've drafted Daryl Griffith, they have Ricky Green... John Drew's getting things going. It's 1984, and at the All-Star break, they have guys leading in statistical categories for blocks, for three points made, and for scoring. Scoring AD. Mark Eaton being the stalwart inside. And in 84, they had the best record heading into the All-Star break. That's why Frank got to coach the team. But that moment is so pivotal in the trajectory of this entire franchise, if they don't have that, this might be the Minnesota Jazz. This might be the Miami Jazz. It might not have gotten an arena downtown called the Delta Center. It needed this level of profitability. 
And at that time, that level of legitimacy because they didn't have that. They had a player who, in AD, coaches around the league said you couldn't win with because all he does is score the ball and that's it, but that he wasn't a winning player. And I think that's false. It is false because 84 proved it. Once the Jazz made that playoff run, they didn't miss it for 19 straight seasons. 19 straight. And AD was pivotal to that. Two seasons where he was the scoring champ. He went a four-year stretch of 30 points or more. He saved his best for really good playoff performances for the Jazz. In 84, they had to go five games the distance in the first round against the Nuggets, and then they lost in six games to the Suns. But both series, they were down two games to one and had to fight back. And I kid you not, when I was watching the clips, I could not believe that this guy was this good of a scorer because he's six three and a half. He wasn't this imposing body. He didn't jump with athleticism like Dominique or Dr. J. He was on the floor and getting buckets in transition. His mid-range game was unreal. He had ranged 18 feet cotton shots every single time that he got the ball out there. And I'm telling you, he had a Kyle Anderson slow-mo pump fake that got people up in the air and got him enough separation. There is a hilarious clip. Somebody who made a video on YouTube of 54 straight minutes of Adrian Dantley buckets, and he is pump faking like three times on the perimeter to get his shot. And it worked! And it worked! Seriously, it is so cool. And I'm glad that he got back in the building, got accepted by the fans, and got a nice send-off. Because it didn't really end particularly great. He held out for a contract to get more money, and that upset Frank Layden towards the end there. Otherwise, I think he would have finished a jazz man. He would have had a really good, successful career. Would have had an opportunity to go up against the Lakers in some pretty pivotal playoff battles in the Western Conference. He's probably, if you're looking at that what-if scenario, could be the thing that takes them over the top in 88 against the Lakers when they go the distance. At that point, he would have had to have been a six-man, seeded time, but he was still a useful playoff body, especially for the Pistons. He was going head-to-head with Bird at times in the Eastern Conference Finals. And 88, they, they only played seven players in the playoffs. You look at the box scores, Thurl's playing 41 minutes as a six-man. But that might be my second favorite what-if to Dominique getting drafted by the Jazz. And the reason why he didn't want to play here happened to coincide with Adrian Dantley playing his spot. He was a small forward. If Neek takes the power forward position, how good are the Jazz at that point? Do they even draft Carmelo? What would the franchise be if that happened? I don't know. He set the table for me to dive in to his career and looking at YouTube, checking out NBA TV, classic games of the Jazz, and it was a joy to watch. Um, I hope you enjoy the sit-down that I have with him because he is one of the greats for this franchise. That's today. I know I promised a trade pod here on the feed to get you primed for February 9th. And it'll come. It'll be the next one. Tim McMahon. I caught up with him 
as he came in town. And I want to get a little notebook going on the Raptors. Because Wednesday, when the Jazz take that team on, you talk to insiders, people around, the deadline runs through those two teams, making decisions on where they're going to go. Because I keep hearing about OG Ananobi, the high price, Fred Van Vliet, him switching agencies ahead of a very pivotal year, a bet-on-yourself all-star, seeing him and figuring out where they're going because they could determine the trade market. So I'll get a notebook on them on Wednesday, and then uh, I'll hit you with that trade pod with Tim McMahon. As for this, five stars, nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Please learn about Adrian Dantley. And the starting off point for this one is it's a crime that he wasn't in the top 75 list that the NBA released. Absolutely criminal, diabolical, terrible. We'll lay out the case, talk to him about it, and that, that'll take care of this launch point. So enjoy it. It's DeMatha's own Adrian Dantley on Roundball Roundup on utahjazz.com. When it comes time to move, it's always a hassle. Loading everything in the truck, hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break, and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. The friendly, background-checked movers at Bailey's Moving and Storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world. So when it's time to move, think Bailey's Moving and Storage. Call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com. compliment a lot of people have said that uh, I think it was about three or four players that played when I played felt that they should have been in the top 75 and those those three that I always hear about is you know myself Alex English and and, and Bernard King those those are three guys I always hear about but you know you got a lot of great players that didn't make it but that's uh that's just the way it goes sometimes you had the Dantley box score we were talking about it with Bob Ryan Nine made field goals, 28, 29 free throws, 46 points. Nobody does that. If you're telling the story of the NBA, you're in it in how you played. Yeah, I remember that night. I can't believe they kept fouling me, going for the same move every time. But uh, that was a, a great night. I think I, I think broke Wilt Chambers' record or tied his record with 28 out of 29 free throws or made 28 free throws. I don't think he ever went 28 for 29. No, but, nobody did. But, uh, yeah, uh, that was an uh, interesting night. The game was in Vegas at that time when I was with Utah. I think our home court was Utah and Vegas. I think we played like 12 games in Vegas that, that year. Yeah. Well, and some people don't remember this, but Kareem set the scoring record against the Jazz, not in Utah, but in Las Vegas, with your two homes, one in the Thomas and Mack. Sure did. He shot a sky hook. I think it was over Mark Eaton. But, uh, yeah, he did break the record there in uh, Vegas. Can you imagine, because LeBron's going to uh, have an opportunity to break Kareem's scoring record, and you were quite the scorer in your own right, how much it takes to be a number one guy to shoulder that load and Kareem was doing it much like LeBron for an extended period of time 
he, he won the, the finals MVP 15 years, years apart. This is unheard of. These are some of the greats. Well, you got to give credit to LeBron. He keeps himself in great shape. You know, I, I'm, you know, when you start talking about conditioning, I get goosebumps because that's what I'm all about. And, uh, hey, for him to do what he's doing at, at, at his age is phenomenal because usually players break down. Or when I played, when you was 32, 33, you was old and the team was going to make you retire. It was no way you was going to play, you know, 34, 35, 36, 37, and, you know, just be out there for it. As opposed to LeBron, he's out there and producing at a at a at a high level. Back to your career, though, because I, I want it want people to be educated on what you did as a player, scoring those twenty thousand points. How'd you get to the free throw line so often? Because we already mentioned twenty eight of, of twenty nine from the free throw line. Your second best is still up there as well. It's the second most free throws that anybody's made in an NBA game. How did you? take all that physicality because the game was different? You were able to, to get a little bit after it. Well, for some reason, I've always had a knack of drawing fouls. For some reason, at every level that I played at, high school, college, pro, you know, guys were like, oh, he, he can't do this. You know, he can't, you know, I, I wasn't really an exceptional high jumper, but uh, I was very uh, sound in fundamentals. And uh, I, I can remember in high school, I mean, even – college and pros, everybody would always go for that pump fake and that head fake at every level. And uh, that was a lot of my success, uh, getting guys off balance, going for the jump shot, and, you know, me sticking my shoulder, you know, in the gut or top of the chest and, and go to the free throw line. So that was, you know, I used to always tell people, it's easy to average 30. All you got to do is get... 10 free throws, get a couple buckets on the transition. You know, that's that's yeah. 14 points right there. And then you're going to get 16 in the offense. So, you know, I always had pride in going to the free throw line. But my main goal was always to try to get my guy that first quick foul, and then they're not going to really defend you that much or they're going to have to sub for you. So that was my strategy, always – whoever was defending me, try to get that first foul early in the quarter. And because uh, it's normal when you get a quick foul in the first quarter, you're not going to defend the guy as much because you want to stay in the game. So you're getting fouls. You're operating in the post a lot. You were described as a, a six-foot-five post player. Mm-hmm. Where would you learn those moves? Where, where's the footwork coming well, from? Well, I scored inside, but I was—I would say I was 18 feet, 19 feet on in. What happened was at every level that I played at, even though we have uh, guys would be six foot nine, you know, every coach always wanted me when they were in the bucket. I was always the guy to go inside, and I was the best inside player, even though we might have players six nine, six ten, you know, same thing in. In, in, in Notre Dame, we had players 6'9", 6'10", but didn't have any post moves. And uh, I always uh, worked on him. Uh, one guy that I like in the NBA that reminds me of myself, in a sense, is the Brunson from New York. Okay. The guy is a, is a six-foot center, and he just, you know, footwork is unbelievable when he's in the post. He's so. zigzagging through the defense when he dribbles in. 
Yeah, well, when he's dribbling, he's zigzagging. But once he but gets in he and he picks fakes. up his dribble, he yeah. got all the pump fakes. You know, great footwork and, you know, great example when a guy supposedly not athletic like everybody's looking for, but wow. he's just beating guys with just fundamental footwork. The other guy I think that reminds me of your game, Kyle Anderson, over in Minnesota because of the pump fake. Yeah. Your, your exaggerated pump fake that gets people up in the air. Well, that keeps, you know, that keeps defenders off balance when you do that. And not that many players in the NBA, uh, you know, pump fake that much. You know, exaggerate the pump fake, you know. But, yeah, he's, 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 pretty, good. he's a pretty good player. He's a pretty good player, yeah. Because could you jump at that time? Because I read a quote where you said, the only thing I can't do, I can't jump. Well, I couldn't jump like all the other guys, but uh, – I always tell people that uh, there's nothing wrong with my knees. I'm walking normally, you know, 68 years old. So, you know, everybody always asks me, everybody that I see that played ball or didn't play ball, they either got a, you know, a hip replacement or knee replacement. Uh, and I don't have any of those. I'm, I'm healthy. One thing I learned when I was a high school kid, I remember when Dr. J came down to D.C., and uh, he would play in the summer league games, and then after the games, everybody else would already have left the arena, and he was around icing his knees. And he probably don't remember this, but I do. He said uh, uh, he said he iced his knees down after every game, and I've been doing that since high school. No matter what activity did I do, when I come home, you know, I ice my knees. Even at, at this age right now, when I work out, I come home. Last thing I do at night is I ice my knees. So. Uh, I've never had any problems, and I guess maybe because I didn't jump high. <laughs> you, and you, you remained pretty healthy during your career. You had that one season in Utah where yeah, your I, season was I, I, when I When I hear players today take off for time management, toenail, fingernail, I'm like, no way in the world. I hate it if I missed a game. I can remember games. I can relate to Michael Jordan. Some of my best games is when I had flu, you know, Cold. It was no way that she was going to keep me out of the game, you know, because you know, just love to play, you know. But uh, uh, I pretty much was a healthy career. I I was leading the league in scoring when uh, I tried to get a rebound from Artis Gilmore, and my hand got caught, tangled up, and tore my wrist ligaments, yep. and uh, ended up missing the remaining, uh, you know. 50 games, but, uh, you know, I love to play, hate to miss games for, you know, when I hear players today, it's, it's amazing, but. And the fact that you played so many games, you were able to accumulate all those points. 1984, I want to talk about that year because, one, the team was phenomenal. Daryl Griffin was leaving the league in three, three points. points. Yeah. Mark Eaton in blocks, you in scoring. How did it all coalesce from when you first get to Utah, losing a bunch, and then to finally break through to the playoffs? Well, when I got there, it was almost like an expansion team. You know, uh, Pete Maravich uh, learned a lot the little bit of time that he was in, in, in Utah. He, he played for Utah first year here, maybe about, you know, first 10, 15 games, then he got, then he ended up getting uh, traded to Boston. And uh, each year we just start getting better, better players. 
and uh, you got Daryl Griffin. Another key player that just passed away this summer was John Drew. He was a sixth man, and he was the hell of a player in, in, in Atlanta. So uh, uh, it, it was it was a it was it was a good team. We had Ricky Green, who ended up was an all star on that team. So uh, that year we we start to blossom, and then the Jazz started drafting good players, better players, and you know Stockton and Malone, and they blossom into one of the you know. Great franchise uh, of the 80s, 90s. Yeah. What do you remember about those battles against Alex English? You played against him in the first round against the Nuggets. You win it in five games. Yeah. It was a situation where you guys were down 2-1 to start that series. What were those battles like with Alex English? Well, anytime you played Denver, you knew that you had to be on your toes. Uh, Alice English was a great player, but not only Alice English, even Kiki Vandeway. I mean, both of them was averaging 29 and 27, you know. And it wasn't night off when you played against them. And the way they played then is the way the NBA is playing now. I can remember when everybody was knocking them when they was fast tempo, quick shots. Now, every team in the NBA does it now. So uh, it was very difficult to play them, especially in the mile high with the altitude and them, you know, Doug Moe wanted the scores in the 130, 140s. And that, that was unheard of back then. But I loved playing against them because you knew it was going to be a high-scoring game. And uh, I think I got my best average against the Denver Nuggets and, and the Dallas Mavericks during my career, yeah. I was watching back some of the highlights, and <clears throat> those quick shots, people are amazed when people take it within five seconds of the 24. Back then, it was just outlet pass shot. It was going up right as, as they got the pass. Well, yeah, that's what Denver did, and that's what everybody's doing now. Up-tempo, that's what everybody wants. That's what all the coaches talk about, up-tempo. Only difference is now, I always tell players when I talk to somebody, I say, how many points do you think I could average if I could just dribble the ball maybe about three more seconds? Because when we played, that was unheard of. You weren't going to be – you know, pounding the ball, you know, like you either shoot, you know, pass, or go to the rim. It wasn't out there, you know, you know, I always laugh and I talk to people, I said, man, yeah, Marcus Haynes out there, you're dribbling the ball so much. And uh, that's the way the game's played now. <laughs> what are your memories of playing alongside John and Carl as they came towards the end of your run here in Utah? Well, I knew that uh, both of those players were going to be great. You know, I think my ninth, ninth year in the league was their first year in the league, Stockton and Malone, and uh, it was just a matter of time. Carl, he always, you could tell he wanted to be great, lifting weights, you know, Stockton the same weights. The, the number speaks for itself for both of those guys, you know. So it was, it was a pleasure playing with them for two years, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Stockton, all you had to do was move without the ball. He was going to get it to you. So uh, uh, great player. Both of them great players. How were you able to score when you're going from John and then you'd also played with Ricky Green all those years? How, well, how different were those two? Well, I score no matter who I have I played with. It's I true. always tell people that. It's but it, it was a lot easier when you had Stockton who was a half-court playmaker, and then you have Ricky who can run the court. You know, you had to be ready to run with Ricky because if you didn't, you know, you wouldn't get a layup. 
Stockton, you can go back door, he get it to you. But uh, it was a lot easier with Stockton on the court. What did these years mean for you in Utah? Because at that point, your career was – it could have gone a couple ways because your first four years, you had three trades, Buffalo, well, Indiana, L.A. Well, you, you talked about my career – about you know playing shouldn't be in the top 75. Also, got a strange career in the sense that I got traded for various crazy reasons. You know, I mean, when I was with the uh, Buffalo Braves, our starting lineup was Bob McAdoo, Moses Malone, myself, Randy Smith, and Ernie D. And we had two different owners. So one owner would go to Europe. He traded Moses Malone to Houston. The other owner come back, he goes out of town, John Y. Brown trades Bob McAdoo to the Knicks, and then they end up trading me at the end of the season. And, you know, that's the only thing that really, you know, that I have a scar about is, you know, the way I, you know, where I got traded for and the reasons why I got traded. Now, when I went to Indiana, as soon as I got to Indiana, uh, Coach Leonard said, Adrian, don't buy a house. We're going to trade you to the Lakers. And I got traded to the Lakers with 18 games in the season, and I think I was the second leading scorer in the NBA at that time. So, you know, so what can I say? Only reason why I was successful by being traded that many times was uh, perseverance. Because usually when a player get traded, a lot of times they're not they're not the same. Something is something is just not there. But I wouldn't let it get me down and uh, just stay focused. It jolts you when you get traded. No matter, no matter what a player says, no, play, yeah. no, no, player don't want to, no, no, no player wants to get traded, but that's part of the business. But when you do, you still got to go out, be a professional, and no matter what the circumstances are, you still got to go out and, and play if you want to have a you know, good career, a long career. I'm sure that teaches you this is a business now. But to realize one day you could be waking up one place and then the next day you could, you're waking up somewhere else. Yep, yep. It definitely uh, it's a wake-up call. What did finally establishing yourself in Utah mean to your career? Well, Utah, I probably would have ended my career if it wasn't for I held out. I held out one year and Coach Frank Layton went ballistic, and that was the downfall of my career in Utah. Had that not happened, I probably, I, I probably would have ended my career in, in Utah. It, it, that's just what happened, and uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's that that was that was that was that did something to me getting traded from Utah because you no know, telling what my career, no telling how many points I could have scored if I stayed in Utah, you know. So, you know, but uh, or how many games could have won, or what I could have, you know, what, who knows what could have happened with me being here with, you know, Malone or Stockton. Who knows. After you went to the Pistons, you had the opportunity to play for a finals. What is the difference between regular season basketball, guys who could put up numbers then, to playoff basketball? Because that's something that you did when you made it to the playoffs. The level gets up. All the players are better. There's a different pressure under those lights. Oh, it's different. And uh, when you get in the playoffs, you, you, you can put pressure on yourself. But uh, when the playoffs start, they always say, okay, we're going to find out what, you know, how this player is going to do in the playoffs. And I had pretty much success in the playoffs, but it's, it's, a, it's just a matter of being focused. And you got to have some talent and you got to have some, 
some, some skills because you're playing against a team to know exactly what you're going to do. Once you get in the series, you know what, what plays they're going to run. So it's just a matter of that indi individual player, you know, producing. You had a pretty good battle with Bird in an Eastern Conference Finals where I think it's funny that people describe you as a no-defense player, but you defended Bird that that uh, Eastern Conference Finals and did pretty well on him. Well, I'll, no one has never so-called scorched me or took advantage of me on the defensive end. No one has never scored four or five buckets a row on me like I like I did on people. So I, I played good defense when I had to. Uh, I wasn't uh, – I, I, I remember that series, played good defense against Bird, but still a great player. I mean, every player that I played against in my era, you played good defense on, they was they were scoring. Like I tell people all the time, I said uh, – I always joke. I said, how many uh, Hall of Famers did LeBron play against? How many guys he played against the Hall of Famers? When, when when, when, during my career, I played against like 14 Hall of Famers at that small forward position. You know, how many players he played against? Durant, the only one I could think of was, you know, you know but me, I, you know, Bernard King, uh, uh, Alice English, Dr. J, you know. A lot, of, a lot of players, a lot of players. You played in a really crazy era of the NBA. A lot of good players. Yeah, at the, at the small forward position, almost every small forward averaged 20 points or more. You know, Kelly Trapukas, you know, scored, you know. It, it, was, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of scores. David Thompson? Yeah, David Thompson, but David, David, David Thompson played guard. You know, I yeah. played forward. But uh, Dominique? Yeah, forget about Dominique. How could I forget him? Let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. draft him, but he wasn't going to come here, but right. they used that trade to get money back, right. savings on that to keep the franchise going. Keep the going. franchise keep going. Keep the franchise going. How do you look back on Utah and how much it's changed since you were around? Oh, man, it's, it's unbelievable. I came here, uh, I was here in November for an appearance. The team was out of town, and it was just amazing how much the uh, – you know, how, how much has grown. The airport was unbelievable. It's got to be one of the best airports in America. I mean, you got every restaurant out there, but it's grown, it's different. It wasn't like that when I was here. It was, you know, small, uh, not all these buildings going on that I see when I, when I came into town. But, uh, I, you know, I, you know play, people always ask me, how could you live in Utah? I said, hey, look, I was so tired. You know, all I did was play basketball and sleep. So, you know, I ain't had time to do what y'all was talking about doing. I, I've never been that way anyway, but I love the fans here and uh, had a great 
great time here. The fans, it was almost like a college atmosphere when we came here. So, uh, but uh, had a good time. Love the fans. Everybody said, well, there's not that many, you know, black people out there. It's not, you know. Didn't matter to me. People treated me nice. I loved it here. And I was hurt when I got traded. I thought I was going to, you know, I thought I was going to end my career here. You should have. You really should have. That's a podcast for another time. But Mm -hmm. where were the All-Star games when you were an All-Star? My first All-Star game was in Washington. Home? Yeah, D.C. I had 23 points that game. Played well. But uh, my my first game was there in uh, Indiana. I don't even remember where else the games were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite an experience. What does it take to be an all-star? Larry Markkinen, player on the team right now, trying to make that all-star team. What does it take in your experience to be an all-star, to be in that group of players that gets to play in that? Well, you always happy to be in the all-star game, but also the players that should be in the all-star game don't, be, don't get selected, you know. I should mean, be you, 15 you, players, not 12. Right, right. You got, you know, you got – Couple of players. I just saw the All Star team. You you got players who make the All Star team and maybe miss, you know, twelve games. You know, but uh, I hope Utah. It's kind of strange when you have a well, you got your All Star in Mitchell, but he's in Cleveland. But uh, <laughs> uh, I hope uh, I hope hope that Utah has a player here because you hate to have a you know All Star game here and you don't have a player that plays in the in the city and not get selected. What does it mean to have that number in the rafters of the arena for you? Well, every player that plays in the NBA, NFL, whatever, Major League Baseball, especially when I look at Major League Baseball, I mean, it's so difficult to get, I mean, to get your your, your, your number retired, uh, you know, make the Hall of Fame. It's, 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 hard. it's, it's unbelievable because I was watching the baseball the other day to, Listen to the experts saying about this guy shouldn't have made the Hall of Fame and this guy didn't. It's a whole, of guy, whole lot of guys waiting. So anytime you get your jersey retired, that's special. I know being home, being, being from the Washington, D.C. area, you know, I always listen to the reporters, and they always talk about how Darryl Green should have his number retired. John Riggins, you know, you know Sonny Jerkson just now got his jersey retired the last game of the, uh, last game of the, of the season. And I remember I was a little kid. I used to watch Sonny Jergson. He's like 80, I don't know, I guess he's like 85 years old. And he's just not getting his number retired. And, 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 you know, Washington commanders back then who were the Redskins. So it's special. It feels good. You know no one is never going to wear that number. And, uh, you know, it feels great. What was the reason behind four? The reason, the reason that is four, because my favorite number was 44. And when I came here, now, now I could have been like a lot of other players, you know, make the guy change his number, change his number, or give him some money for all that, which wouldn't, which I wasn't going to do. But anyway, when I got to Utah, John Brisk, Briscoe wore number 44, so I just said, you know, don't worry about it. What happened was, when I got traded to the Lakers, Jerry West had 44. So I couldn't wear 44. And yeah. then I ended up wearing four. So when I got traded from L.A. to Utah, I had four, and he had 44. I wanted the number back, but I just said, forget it. You know. And Jerry was your coach, right? Yeah. yeah. How was that? Oh, I don't know. He was great. I loved him. You know, got along with him real well. And uh, it wasn't like – he wasn't like that 
that little episode that Winning you saw. Time. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't like that, no. He, he wasn't throwing I, I, his I, trophies into the... No way, no. You know, I, I, I look at that stuff, I'm like, wow. You know, he was competitive. He wanted to win. But I, when I saw that stuff, I was like, that, that didn't happen in L.A. But anyway, I got along with him real well. And uh, great guy. Last thing before I let you go, because I want to know. And you took so many free throws, 8,000 <laughs> of them. Right, and I didn't get that 75. That's one read right there, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm saying 23,000 points. You're telling me that's not a, a top 75 player? Yeah. Anyway, the free throw routine, well, where did that come from? The, I always had that uh, routine. I always took my time. got to the point where, you know, they, they, they count 10 seconds for the Greek freak. They was doing that to me. I mean, the coaches used to be yelling that all the time. Carl used to get that. Yeah, yeah. But the reason why I took my time because I was so exhausted and tired. So that 10 <laughs> seconds really helped. So I always, you know, shot the free throw right at the eighth, ninth second. And the same routine that I did in pros is what I did in high school, over the front room, backspin, follow through. Do my little routine with the ball rolling a little bit. Ball might be wet and uh, shoot the free throw. So had success with that. Work for Coach Wooten, I imagine? Yeah. He's... Every player knows that that goes at the mouth and knows that over the front of them, backspin, follow through, and triple threat position. That's what we were known for. You know? And I used that <laughs> all throughout my career, college and pros. Well, worked out? Worked out pretty good. Adrian Dantley on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time. Great talking to you.